Wadia. It's unfortunate because Borat just came out again and I'm never gonna live it down, am I? He's from the Republic of Wadia, I think. Yeah, I remember my dad thought that the first Borat movie was like the funniest movie he'd ever seen in his entire life. interviewed a developer just recently. He's, he's Arab, he's American though, and being of Arab descent, he was always fascinated by Arab perspective on Arab culture, and you don't all, always get that in the English-speaking world. So his PhD, his thesis was um, basically Arab studies and the perspective of Arab people from Arab people's from their own internal point of view. And he wanted to publish that stuff, but before he could get there, he decided he had a change of heart and he decided to get into dev. Somebody coming in with a master's degree in arts, uh, minority background, non-traditional background, trying to get into development. And you know me, I've hired people who had PhDs in neuroscience. I've had people who did seven years as a Japanese translator coming into development after that kind of experience. I've hired people who came in from a fine arts background, a designer, and they wanted to become a developer. And it's always just really interesting the stories you hear when you're dealing with people who are not geeks in the traditional sense, who, who are coming in with a different perspective. I can safely say we need, we need a lot more perspective in software dev. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because once I started to listen to a lot of podcasts and hear a lot of different developers tell their story is that to me, I realized that the non-traditional background is becoming the traditional background. Because if you think about it, like, they don't teach JavaScript in college. Essentially, everyone has self-taught themselves JavaScript, you know, or learned it in a boot camp. Even the people who are going through computer science degrees, they're still not necessarily learning how to build projects or people who are in a non-CS degree are doing some sort of like, you know, statistical analysis of, you know, random biochemistry stuff, you know, they learn R and they can like, you know, script like nobody's business. So it's it's really interesting to see how all these people come in from like these different areas and, and perspectives. On that note, I'd love to get your background. Monarch Wadia, thank you for joining us for the Full Stack Jamstack podcast. You are a owner of a company called Mintbean, which we're going to get into, and you are a programmer yourself. Tell us a little about yourself, your background, how you got here. Yeah, for sure. A long time ago, I was also non-traditional. So I did my undergrad in finance. And this was just around the time when the entire world collapsed financially. 2008. Yeah, 2008 to 2012. That's just around that period. When I graduated, I had all the perspective in the world about how the economy collapsed, how it worked, um, you know, subprime debt, all of that. And when they started doing documentaries, I was like, yeah, I know this stuff. But when I graduated, it was a really, really, really bad year to graduate in finance because nobody was hiring. It's like the dot-com bubble. Nobody's hiring developers after that. And I had a long-term dream to make my own video game. And I decided, well, you know, I'm managing a few retail stores, just not, not really paying any rent, paying my own bills, uh, living with my parents. Might as well spend some time and learn how to code. So I picked up Java, uh, the reference book, fourth edition, it was already like four or five years out of, out of date at that point already. Why Java? Honestly, I just needed to start somewhere. I didn't know where to start. So I picked up Java. A friend had a Java book. I didn't know any better. I didn't have any mentorship. Uh, she was a database person, not a Java person. Picked up Java. It's like this thick, that book. Uh, it's almost 2,000 pages, a, a few pounds in weight. And I paced through it cover to cover. And that's how I taught myself how to program. I would get up in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd get up, I'd start reading, learning, coding, go to work, come back in the evening, another two, three hours at night, just coding and reading and coding and reading. One thing led to another. I started doing very lightweight uh, freelance gigs very low rate. I was I was charging under minimum wage at that point. One thing kind of led to another now, 10 years later, almost 10 years later now. I've been a software architect for large companies doing their Angular and React UI projects um, with more than 100 developers um, on, on all said and done, giving them technical advice and guidance. I've worked on Java, JavaScript, Rails, Python. I've worked on React, Angular, uh, view backbone uh, in production. All of this is in production. I'm not even counting the stuff that I've played around with. Like I won't even count FSJM because I haven't used it in production yet. Back then, 
it was hard. It was hard. It was hard getting into it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that I made the switch. So that's kind of a nutshell of how I got into programming. That's a super awesome story, especially for someone like me who what you just described of like working coding, working coding, like that's where I am. The progression of technologies you've worked on is, is really incredible. And it sounds like you've seen essentially the entire evolution of JavaScript over the last decade. What are you working on? Where do you work? What do you do? Well, I'm a bootcamp student, so I'm in Lambda school right now. So doing like remote learning. So I'm like two thirds of the way through that program. So I've done the whole web development part, which is four months or eight if you're part-time and you do like HTML, CSS, JavaScript for a month, then you do React for two months and then you do Node backend for a month. So I'm finishing up that right now and then we'll have a month of like computer science, Python, data structures, algorithms type stuff. And then we have kind of an internship type thing that that comes after that. It's been really great. Like it's been obviously a struggle, you know, like just learning to code in general, having like work at the same time and, you know, balance a lot of different stuff. You know, it's definitely, you have to really think about how you spend your time, spend your money, spend your attention. And what's your, what's your professional background before you got into coding? I was originally a music teacher. I got my degree in instrumental music education and I spent a year teaching high school band and wasn't really that into it, and then spent four years running a performing arts summer camp. I got a pretty good taste of like running a business. Like I was doing the admin work, really, really heavy logistical, high stakes type work. Some people enjoy that work and like, you know, I want something a little more creative, found my way to programming. Like I've always been into computers my whole life, but never quite made it over that hump into coding. I always say that we're the Oregon Trail generation, right in between like the social media on one end and like the actually working with like a terminal DOS kind of thing on one end. We're kind of like in that middle between the two. It's funny, I used I used Neopets, I used MySpace, I used all of these things that all these other people learned to code with. I never made it to any of the coding sections on those websites. So I didn't start coding until I was like 27. So yeah, so I've been learning for like a couple of years now. And I started wanting to originally do like data science because I was into like machine learning and natural language processing. I learned Python for a while and then eventually like was like, all right, the JavaScript thing seems to be the thing to do. Like if I'm actually just trying to like get a job as quick as possible, like get out there, it's like JavaScript is, is the thing to do. Don't have the job yet, but in terms of like opportunity and like things like Redwood, it's like learning JavaScript and React especially was definitely the right bet. Dude, yeah. I, I think you've made the right jump just, you know, speaking with you, just getting a feel for you. I work with a lot of bootcamp devs and just getting a feel for the kind of person you seem to be at, at first glance. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it suits your personality if you have the curiosity and the drive, 100%. Uh, that's what I got into it for. I, I, I didn't want to manage stores and deal with customers and deal with paperwork and inventory accounts and all that. I didn't want to do all that. I wanted something creative. I've actually gotten to work a little bit with Mint Bean. You've given me the opportunity to give a couple talks at Mint Bean. I've really enjoyed them. They've been really fantastic. Mint Bean seems to be doing a lot of different things. Like you guys are producing content, you're doing meetups, you have a career focused sections. How do you see the different parts of this and how it all fits together? First off, we have, we definitely have a um, mismatch in terms of how we communicate our value and our missions and what we do and why we even exist. We're in the middle of refreshing this and addressing this, and it'll probably take two weeks a month sometime. But essentially, the thing that people don't yet know, and they will know, but they don't yet know, is um, Mintbean is a bridge. Mintbean is meant to be a bridge for developers who are breaking into software development, like yourself, and who need that first initial push or support, either emotional or technical, or opportunity. Once you're at that point where you need that first opportunity and the first job, Mintbean is here to serve people like you and to help you get your first opportunities in software dev, no matter where you're starting. So if it's your first line of code that you're writing, the goal is to have Mintbean be an entity that helps you out. We aren't quite there yet, but where we do start off usually is, you know a little bit of code, you know how to put together you know, a script or two, maybe you've done one front-end project, something simple. At that point, you can start coming to our hackathons, our workshops, our events, start learning more and more about what core development really looks like. Not the stuff that's academic, you can learn that in many different ways, and boot camps are a fantastic way to learn that. But really, what does 
actual coding look and feel like? What's the culture like? And what does it mean to be in in Silicon Valley without maybe not even being in Silicon Valley? What does it mean to be a software developer? We have a few different programs. So you have the hackathons, you have the workshops. We're also starting up an apprenticeship system. We've actually already started that long time ago. We started hiring developers from the community. We've hired almost 10. We've helped way more in terms of career coaching and mentorship, but we've hired almost 10. We're now, we just recently soft launched the apprenticeship system and we just placed our first apprentice with a company called Finavio which is a fintech company in Toronto that's looking to revolutionize the way um, the trucking industry handles invoicing. And we just placed our first apprentice over there. Are they using the blockchain? Oh, no, um, they're, they're, they're not. <laughs> for better or for worse, they're not. <laughs> I cannot tell you like how important what you're doing is and like how badly needed it is. There are YouTubers who get like hundreds of thousands of views giving this kind of like career advice. There's that many people out there looking for it. And so, yeah, like it's it's really incredible like what, what you're providing. Like how do you help people? How do you get them across that bridge? Like what is that bridge? The hackathon is the core thing, right? The hackathon is a place where you go to compete within a set time limit. Your Your goal is to create a project within seven days. The hackathon helps you learn what you need to do, uh, what gaps you have in order to become job ready. The hackathon is a place where you go, you interact with other developers, you meet five, 10, 100 different people who are in the industry, you network, you create friends, you create a network. And out of it comes career skills because you're gonna be talking to people and getting tips, learning how to interview is one of them, learning how to write a resume is one of them. You're in that group of people who are like-minded. You upskill your career, you, up, you build your network, and most importantly, you build your hard skills, which is the main thing that people need to develop in order to get that job, of course. While you're doing the hackathons, you're gonna be doing a project a week, roughly, um, maybe more. And uh, we used to do, it, it used to be nuts. We used to do um, three hackathons a week. We've kind of dialed it down recently. And are these individual people creating a project or group projects? So group sizes are one to three. You can do it solo, you can do it with a couple of friends. One, one or two friends can get together, two or three friends can get together. So what you're describing, it definitely sounds a little bit like what Lambda does for their build weeks. So you were saying academic versus real world experience and whether you can like get that from a boot camp or not. I would say for the most part, you're right. Ours is structured in a way where for each month unit, the last week is like what you're describing, where you have a week long project that you have to build and you have to build it with a team of like five to six people. The projects don't work at the end, but you learn a lot. I, I would still categorize the hackathons and what you guys are doing at Lambda as academic. I would still classify those as academic still, because what we do at the end of those hackathons is we identify the people who are really good at what they do and we start giving them opportunities. We make the right connections, we make um, email introductions, we give them career advice and mentorship, and we give them feedback on their projects. And the whole goal of the hackathons is to take you to the next step, which is an apprenticeship, which is when you get a paying job under somebody who's a senior developer and who has the bandwidth to mentor you on a real life project, that's going to be in production or has already been launched and you're going to be inheriting a project. So it's the whole goal of the hackathons is to get you to that next step, which is your first job as an apprentice. That is still just part of the bridge, but that's the most essential part of the bridge. I would say actually you and Lambda are actually fairly aligned because um, Lambda has more people working on career services than they do like teaching code. Like Lambda is massive and they have a lot, a lot of career development going on. Their whole thing is they're an income share agreement. So you have to get a job or they don't get paid. Like that's how, that's how the deal works, you know? So I find that I would describe them as a lot less academic than some boot camps, just because like they have this whole overarching model about getting a job. Yeah, I, I have a lot of criticisms of Lambda, even though I'm, I'm defending them right now. I got a million problems with Lambda, but um, in general, I think they're doing good work and that they're trying to do the same thing you're doing just from a, a different angle. Oh yeah, I, I love every single bootcamp. I think they are godsends. I think that bootcamps are the future. I don't think that the current system of four-year education is going to survive. I think the model that bootcamps have innovated and brought forward is the right model. 
Um, it does not take four years to teach somebody how to code. And universities are following suit too. So just like Lambda, there's um, the University of Toronto has a boot camp now. That's a one-year boot camp. Um, I think Seneca um, in Toronto also has another six-month or one-year boot camp. Yeah, man, like boot camps, there's a lot that they don't cover. But I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. I think we cover too much in massive four-year comp sci degrees. And the people who come out of it, a lot of them, they, they face the same struggles that the bootcamp grads face, you know, after they graduate. So I'm, I'm a big supporter of bootcamps. I love bootcamps. Bootcamps are amazing. As a graduate of a top young university in the UK, the core principle and philosophy we were always taught by our lecturers was that we are not teaching you necessarily the languages you want to learn and will learn and will use in industry, but the philosophy and the reasons why you program them ways. For me, that made no sense. I hated the philosophy. I like to code and anything explaining how to code is not my stuff. Like the the biggest question is, in uh, Lambda school, do they teach you about O notation of algorithms? That's why I was, that's exactly what I was gonna ask you if you learned O notation in school. Oh yeah, we learned O notation. Can I remember most of it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Did you learn it though? Because that's the thing is that ideally what you're supposed to get is you're supposed to actually come out of these programs understanding the fundamentals. You should actually know how to think algorithmically. You should know how to think about time complexity and space complexity. And you should have it ingrained as something you can actually think about because you did it for many years. That's where the actual doing it for many years actually makes sense for this type of stuff that you're not just learning something like super practical, you're learning something more bigger long-term. So, I mean, ideally, if you could do a four-year degree and then like do a boot camp at the end, like that would be the ultimate. Then you would you'd be able to do anything. So you'd have the theory and you'd have the actual practical knowledge too. So I think it's about integrating the two. The actual, I would believe the most core principle to junior development and senior development is you've come across a problem how do you fix that problem, find a solution to that problem as fast as possible using as least resources? Does university teach you that? University never taught me that. So do Lambda school? Maybe. I think Lambda school, it's very focused on teaching you tech. So it's like, they are going to teach you React. Like you're gonna be able to write a React router link component, you know, after. And like, that's really great. I feel like, they're almost missing a little bit too much of the fundamentals because like we don't learn things like the fetch api you know like we don't learn kind of like the real fundamental stuff that like everyone knows but no one even knows that they know it because they know it so well so there still ends up being a kind of gap because they have like a really pure idea of the tech they want to teach and like the stack they want to teach and i think it's like it's the right stack but it ends up skipping over a couple steps that are really important but in terms of like how you read docs and stuff like that, like it kind of depends on the instructor you get, honestly. I guess that's the biggest thing. When I went to university, I probably never read a languages documentation because we went by what was taught to us. Obviously, you had books that you paid hundreds of dollars for. Yeah, exactly. But did I ever read a documentation on C++ on the internet? No, I had a book, you know. Curing it, hopefully. I don't actually believe that either of them is gonna die or completely disappear because everybody learns differently. And also, this is something you probably don't know, that most universities in the UK, I don't know about America, but most of their money is not made by tuition fees. It's actually made by the university's PhD departments, the theorists the people that basically solve really hard problems for big companies and governments and blah 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 isn't isn't that software development though abstractions upon abstractions upon abstractions but jokes aside um i totally agree and you know to chris's point what what universities the real value that they offer the people who pay them is they solve really hard problems. These are people, these professors are people who've been steeped in their field. Look, look at, for example, say Noam Chomsky, been a linguist, been a political commentator for almost his entire life, starting from the age of probably 20, 25. Now he's, what, 80, 85? And to, to have an expert in a field that's been in that field 60 years, 
that's what software development, not, not computer science, but software development is missing. And that's what Mint Bean is trying to provide. We look at ourselves as a practical, hands-on college slash university, but whereas most universities do research, we do software development. What we're doing is we're taking these developers who are new to software development. They're in, maybe they've been here for three months in this industry, uh, just graduated boot camp, a, a few steps ahead of Anthony maybe. And at that point, for the ones who've shown real grit, real intelligence, the ones who really want to upskill themselves and have shown that record, the track record, we invite them to become mid-bean apprentices. And at that point, the value that we offer the companies is, hey, we're going to build something for you or we're going to help you in X, Y, Z way. And the only reason we're doing that is to sponsor these apprentices, to give them the education that they need in real production code. So instead of going to, say, a university, you can teach yourself enough code, enough JavaScript to be dangerous, and then come into Mint Bean and we give you the practical knowledge that's, uh, that you are missing. That's the whole purpose and mission of Mint Bean. Where do you make connections with companies? Oh, um, right now we, we have a group of sponsors that are helping us out and that are helping us get past the current uh, growth phase. We're very early on in our cycle. We're looking for contributors, sponsors to help us in our mission and to help give these developers um, more opportunities and to create basically a, a long-term solution, a, a really solid highway in, through which developers can flow and get that real-world education that they need. Do you think you've had a decent amount of success in terms of like the companies you have gotten the foot in with the door yet? Have you like kind of talked to someone and they've been like, ah, eh, we're not really into this or like are, are companies like we need a feeder program? Oh, our, our sponsors love us. So we are working with, uh, for example, FeatureFeek is one of the sponsors that um, very prominently sponsors our community. And FeatureFeek, they're sponsoring the community because they get our mission. Uh, the CEO uh, and the CTO, they're both developers. They understand what it takes to break into the industry and they understand the problems that we're facing. And they've very generously um, given us their support and um, it helps them too, right? They're building a CLI tool that helps developers deploy front-end projects very quickly. So think about something like Vercel or now.sh, but custom built for front-end developers. The, the interests are all aligned and they understand what we're trying to do. So they've decided to very generously step in and sponsor us. Finavio, who I mentioned before, they're a very generous sponsor as well. They needed an MVP built. They're coming into our community and they're telling us to, hey, look, we need help in building this MVP. Of course, we would sponsor an apprentice to come in and help build that MVP. And I'm very involved in both of those projects and I'm very involved in um, helping uh, FeatureFeek spread their message and helping Finavio build their MVP. I'm involved in architecture meetings, marketing meetings, everything, depending on what the sponsor is looking to get out of the engagement. That's cool. Yeah, I've actually heard of Feature Peak. They did um, a software engineering daily interview, which is a show I listen to religiously. And um, it was one of those companies where like, if you've worked with Git and just like modern deployment and stuff, you're just like, you immediately get the problem. But if you try to like describe it to someone who's like doesn't code, there's like, like what? But yeah, no, it's uh, it's super cool. <laughs> they're, they're super cool. There is no way right now. It's crazy. Twenty twenty before before Feature Peak. There is no way for designers, product managers, and developers to collaborate without actually being in the same room at the same time. And they're solving that. It's it's a it's massive. I think their their stack is beautiful too. It's it's all um, it's all Dockerized. They're using a lot of GoLang, and it's it's a bunch of cool technologies. Like if you if you ever if you ever talk to the guys, like you should totally ask them about it. It, it it's it's really slick. It's cool stuff. Nice. Do you like Go? Are you a Go guy? I think Go is uh, probably uh, it's a contender to replace Java, but I I don't know from from a language feature perspective. Yeah, I think Go is great. I think it's slick. Um, I think it's it's kind of like Muay Thai, is is what I like to say. It's it's got just the minimum set of moves needed to knock down your opponent, like you know, to to knock down those bugs and those issues and those features. Um, it's not like Java at all in that sense, but you know, it depends on the community. Yeah. Funny, actually, you say you think of it as a replacement for Java, because I think of people are going from Java either to C Sharp or to Kotlin and that people who are going to to go are coming from like C or I even hear people who are coming from Python 
who are having trouble scaling Django, and they see Go, and it it looks a lot like Python. Like, it's, it's very minimal, very, like, syntactically clean language. I'm a huge, huge language nerd, so I find all this stuff super interesting. I'm a little more interested in Rust than Go, personally, but um, I think both of them are, like, super fascinating technologies. I, my head starts spinning when I think about the um, uh, the memory management system in Rust. What's it called? The borrow checker? I played with it for a week or two, and at the end of it, I, I got it. I understood it, but I still kept running into those issues. And I think that's the main adoption hurdle that Rust is going to face. Did you use anything like C before? Had you ever done a memory managed language before Rust? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, yeah, I haven't. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm learning memory management while I'm learning Rust. <laughs> oh, wow. Rust is not a good language to learn memory management. What is a good language then? <laughs> C. Just plain old C. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I've, I've heard that like the reason people like Rust is that it allows them to do the same memory management they do in C, but it's simpler. It's optional, I would say. In, in Rust, what happens is you, at static compile time, it's the language itself is built in such a beautiful way that you don't need a garbage collection process in runtime because it's in static analysis that they do away with all the garbage collection problems and the memory management problems. Because it's an ML family language. ML? What, what do you mean? What's an ML family? That's interesting. So um, have you heard of OCaml? Yeah. OCaml is a di is like a dialect of ML. So ML is like kind of a bigger subset of languages that OCaml and Rust are both based on. Like people don't think of Rust as a functional language, but it's actually a functional language. It's an ML language. <laughs> interesting. What does ML stand for? Meta language. Because it's built on top of C, C++. Is that why they call it a meta language? No, it's, it's not built on C or C++. It's like... It's like Lisp or Haskell or Clojure or any other functional language. It's literally, it's all functions. It's functions all the way down. So you can't build it on an object-oriented language or a language that uses structs or anything like that. Like it's the two fundamental, the paradigms don't play together. Like you are functional by not being object-oriented, you know? So all these languages, like Reason is, is another one. Like they're all built from the ground up to be purely functional. And then you get all these benefits that kind of spin out from that in terms of like immutability and knowing your inputs and outputs and stuff like that. But yeah, we're way off the track here. Way off the track, but it's an interesting conversation. But I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you guide the way. I want to get into, so you are the most framework agnostic person we're going to have on this show for a very long time because we are, we, we talk a lot about, you know, Redwood and we're going to get the, the Blitz and Bison guys on soon, but you're not in any of the frameworks. You actually kind of have somewhat of a detached perspective of this whole scene. You've hosted events for full stack, jam stack stuff. You've been like really supportive of this like super new community that we've kind of been forming. And it's, you said something that I thought was so interesting where you said you feel like it's changing the economics of education. And when you said it to me, I got the impression you've made this pitch to other people and they didn't get what the heck you were talking about. Whereas when you said it to me, my reaction was, I can't believe someone else has finally figured this out. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we're talking about all these different languages. It's actually a really nice segue because we have the context we need to talk about this. With C, C++, uh, you, you have this really hard problem, which is how do I manage ones and zeros that change in a deterministic way without losing my mind, right? And that last bit is the important bit. I also say this other thing, which is if the singularity ever happens, it's, it's not going to need a statically typed language, right? That's uh, because you don't need to manage code if you have enough processing power in your damn CPU to deal rough with, with the ones and zeros directly. It's because we as limited meat-based processing units, we only have limited uh, memory, we only have limited processing time as human beings. And so we need to bring order out of the seeming chaos of binary. Now, the first attempts at this were, let's just wire these zeros and ones together in some kind of assembly language with punch cards. And um, that was like the first attempt at managing the complexity that comes with binary. Built on top of assembly is C, which said, hey, look, it's crazy to even use punch cards and it's crazy to even use uh, raw CPU instructions. Algo 68 or 60 would have been like in between those two. Not familiar with Algo 60. In terms of like modern programming paradigms, like you know subroutines and all that kind of stuff, you should look into Algo. So that was the same generation as 
Fortran and COBOL. So Fortran, COBOL, and Algol all came out in the late 50s, early 60s. So that was the languages that came in between assembly and the, the C languages. So go-to statements is what I'm hearing. Exactly, yep. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, 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 so let, let's, let's go with that. So you have uh, Algo and COBOL and Fortran, and you have C, C++ along, around the same time kind of emerging as competitors. On top of that, now you get Python and then Java. Yeah, then you get object-oriented, yeah. Object-oriented. And they're building abstractions on top of abstractions, but the main driver over there is not processing power, the main driver of the main selection agent for this evolutionary process of languages. The main selection criteria is not, hey, how fast can you reproduce as in animals or how, how much food can you eat fast? Can, do you have a thick enough skin that you can withstand uh, parasites or insects that are trying to get into your skin and eat you from the inside and all that stuff? The analog for that is how easy are you to use and how understandable is it? How understandable is it? Which means that the main selection criteria is understandability and ease of digestion. And the limiter for that historically has been processing time, uh, or rather CPU power, I should say. And because of Moore's law, CPU power has been um, largely rendered irrelevant for most use cases for programmers. So we were floating in this utopia, this cornucopia of CPU processing power. And what becomes important now is how understandable is a language? How understandable is a framework? Is it easy to work with? Can you teach developers really quickly um, how to work with this language when they onboard onto your company or they get into your school? Um, how quickly can you teach them a framework, a language? And we had it really good until Ruby on Rails. We had it really good. And then JavaScript came along and ruined it for 10 years. I love JavaScript, but it ruined it for 10 years. And for the last 10 years in JavaScript, we've been reinventing the wheel all the way up from compiling, you know, Webpack, um, before that Bower, before that Rolla, uh, not Rolla, but Gulp, Grunt, co compiling, recompiling the languages, building uh, syntax sugar on top of languages. We've, we've evolved from there now to TypeScript, statically typed language in, Javas in the JavaScript world. And the next step now has to be, let's make it easier to manage business logic complexity. And that's where FSJAM comes in. I mean, that, that, was, that was a long ramble. TLDR, because FSJAM frameworks are easy to understand, you can teach more developers programming faster in an easy language, which is JavaScript. It just completely blows my mind that people haven't seen this. I, I think Ruby on Rails was the best thing since sliced bread for people breaking into the industry. I cut my teeth on Ruby on Rails um, in some of my first production projects. And it taught me everything from you know, front-end CSS, uh, front-end JavaScript, REST. Uh, it taught me how to migrate databases, how to manage my logic, gave me convention-based patterns that really just drilled into me the importance of managing your code, of having a sensible folder structure, of having sensible conventions. And all of that disappeared when JavaScript came along. And I'm so happy that we're finally coming full circle coming back to that convention-based philosophy with FSGEM. That's why I think it's just more boot camps need to know about FSGEM. You know, more universities need to know about FSGEM. If you haven't tried to go through the process of trying to learn JavaScript, like modern JavaScript, and then like go through the process of then learning a really nice framework, you have to do both of them. You have to both feel the pain and then get the solution. And until you've done that, it's so hard to explain like the feeling you get when you finally have something that you can use and that makes sense and that works and that you can like build with. Once I got into it, I was just like, this is like the thing. Like, and I've been super passionate about it. It's really cool that I'm finding other people who are on this wavelength. Uh, the old Ruby on Rails guys, once FSGM, it's just starting to emerge in popularity. Once they get, get wind of it, all of those old Ruby on Rails developers who are now architects are going to jump on the bandwagon. Like it's bound to happen. That's the main thing I hear when someone new comes into the community and they're like, man, Redwood, this thing's super awesome. It's just like Rails. I love it. It's funny because the differences between it and Rails are far wider than the similarities, but the similarities are what you get first off when you're introduced to it and it's introduced to you in a way where it feels like Rails. And I think this actually trips people up who know Rails too well because then they start making assumptions about Redwood that don't necessarily hold. 
Yeah, Redwood is, from what I understand of it, it very much buys into JavaScript style, functional inspired programming. And it uses newer technology, GraphQL, etc. But at the same time, it's not built like Rails, but it's built from the same principles and values that inspired and informed Rails. It's not the what or the how, I think it's the why that's matching between those two communities, between Rails and Redwood. Yeah, it's really interesting how they holistically want to have a full, coherent project structure with good conventions, but they have different conventions. They're aligned in that sense. It's the same thing with like Redwood and Blitz. Like they're both going for the same thing. So people look at them and think they're basically the same thing, but they're going at it from totally different directions. So you end up with two things that are totally separate, that are totally different, trying to occupy a similar niche almost, but then they actually find the niche. Redwood's more for if you want like a crazy huge API with multi-clients and Blitz is like, nah, I want your project spun up fast, and like do something pragmatic, you know? It all ends up working out, I think, because if people are actually working on things they're passionate about, they're like building things that are meaningful to them, everything just kind of goes in the right direction organically, I think. Well, one of one of the questions that I have, and I have a controversial answer, is do you think FS Jam is ready for mass adoption yet? What is mass adoption, right? Like 80% of the use cases out there can be solved by FS Jam. Sure, the frameworks are new. They have kinks that need to be worked out. And there are, you know, I, I don't even think Redwood is at uh, version one yet. But then again, React reached mass adoption before it reached version one. Has it reached version one? I don't, I don't know what the version numbering is now. I think the biggest thing that's going to hold FS Jam back right now, and I've, I've experienced this myself, is serverless. I don't, I personally don't think serverless is ready yet for critical applications like my own using payment processing. You want that to be done as fast as possible, and sadly, serverless was just not cutting the chop. I actually managed to Frankenstein Redwood to work on PM2, the Node.js, uh, is it called a running manager? The process manager. Process manager, that's it. But to get to that point, you start getting to the unbeaten path, and the question is, how far down the unbeaten path must you get before it gets too hard because I would say booting up Redwood in PM2 on an Ubuntu droplet that's fresh Linux gets quite complex quite fast if you've never even touched Linux before but when the abstractions work i.e. serverless functions are fast require no server to run and no cold starts I think it will definitely fly I think whether FSJAM is ready or not depends on what, how you define FSJAM. In many ways, FSJAM is already here with Next.js if you define that Next.js as being part of FSJAM. Do they have a database? No. <laughs> well. That's the problem. So it's like, that's why this is a new thing, you know? So what you're saying, Chris, about the reliability of, of serverless, I think that's a really interesting point because you can architect a serverless application that's highly unreliable, or you could just have it shoot straight into a DynamoDB and like have a super crazy resilient database. So I think it's about how you architect your application, but you have to like, you have to know the space. You have to spend time with the different services, the different tools, the different technologies, and which ones are actually reliable and how do you put them together in a reliable way. I think this comes down to what kind of a developer you are. It's almost like in my head, Myers-Briggs, you know, you all fall into a different type of developer. I would strongly class myself as a bootstrapper. I, I have a problem. I'll do anything to fix that problem. Don't care how crazy it is. Problem fixed, move on. But Anthony, you may fall into more theory and philosophical. And this is how it was done in the past. This is how we'll move forward. What about you, Monarch? What do you think you fall into? I think it depends on the project. If I'm working on a legacy project, you can't help but be a bootstrapper in that scenario because you just want to get the job done. But when we start new projects from scratch, especially now that I'm mentoring developers a lot more, about six or seven hours of my day goes into mentoring developers, just directly sitting with them, talking to them. Uh, each developer gets an hour of my time. We've already hired six people on the apprenticeship program without calling them apprentice uh, apprentices. So. Each developer gets an hour of my time every day. In that model, I try to stick as closely to 
the cathedral philosophy of, you know, build this forever as possible because I need to teach them, hey, this is how you build it right. Don't worry about the compromises. They'll come and we can make compromises. So it really depends on the use case. My question back on that is, is time the ultimate factor to bootstrapping or cathedral building, as you say? Because I would say, oh yeah, I always start cathedral building. Like it's always going to be there forever. And then the further you get into the project, the closer to the hundred percent you get, the more bootstrapping you'll get. <laughs> As this just needs to be finished. It's true. It's true. I had a boss who said, um, it, it, any project you work on, if it makes money, it's it stinks. <laughs> any any project that makes money stinks. So, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's a contradiction there. <laughs> I, I could believe that because at the end of the day, you tend to find, and this is also a really interesting question to ask is, what are you teaching your developers to be? The only developer or a developer in a team with a very specific role? Because if they go into a tiny company, they could be one developer that has to do everything and have to be very high level. Or they could go into a bigger organization where they're more low level and then just focus on one area. Mm. Have, have you heard of Conway's Law? No. <laughs> Maybe. Every organizational structure eventually, every communication structure approximates the organizational structure. Like, you look at Amazon. Amazon is the ultimate example of Conway's Law. Amazon talks about two, two pizza teams. So a two-pizza team is a team of people you could feed with two pizzas. Every one of their services is a two-pizza team. That's why they have 300 random disconnected services. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, Conway's law. Uh, uh, the way I like to put it is, uh, the creature is always created in the image of the creator, and it, it's basically it's it's everywhere. Like if and, and it works both ways. It's weird. Uh, it, it's really weird how that law shows up in different in different parts of life. If you are of the mindset that you will always work in one person teams, your career will also be shaped in that way. And you will specialize just naturally into being a one-person army. If you decide that, like, like for me, for example, that's how I specialized early on because I didn't see the need to, maybe through an experience, didn't see the need to work with others. So all my code was just written for me. But then I worked in a company that didn't operate that way. And they taught me how to be the other type of developer. And they kind of shaped the creature that is me into their own image. So I, I picked up skills, I picked up knowledge. And now wherever I go, I notice that I'm taking those that company's patterns with me and I'm shaping new code in the shape of that company. Yeah, like coming back to your question, I think it was something along the lines of what do you teach these people to be? Yeah, what do you teach people to be? Someone that could do everything that you would say, I can do everything to 75% or someone that can do a couple of things. Specialist versus generalist. Gotcha. I think the way I look at it is I, my, my goal is not to make that decision for the developer. My goal is to see where their natural inclinations are, where their personality is naturally guiding them, what their interests are, and unlock them along the way. So I can take somebody who wants to be a solo developer and teach them everything they need to know about. Don't use, you know, React and Express. Use something like FSGM or Rails or Adonis or something that'll let you work solo. Make choices that make sense for you in this case. I can take somebody who wants to be an enterprise developer and say, don't even go into JavaScript, it's a waste of your time. Go into Java or C-sharp and I'll guide you along that way. So it really depends on the natural progression that these people are aiming at. Like I, I know developers who only wanted backend and enterprise and they came from an academic background. They got hired by a company that uh, does work with other universities, a lot of universities. And I helped guide that person along that path. And it's just, I don't think it's my decision. I think it's the developer's decision at the end of the day. I agree. People tend to seem to lean more towards one or the other. Some people really want to super duper specialize on something some people really want to learn a million different things and i think you have to you have to counterbalance it like for me i was someone who liked to learn a, a million different things and i had to really like pick something and force myself to not learn anything else so like once i like went all in on react it was like all right this is the only thing i'm going to be learning you know you have to get that focus when you're starting i think it's funny it's funny how youtube was talking about all their languages and i'm just like i just learned javascript it does everything these days thanks everyone 
Don't care about all the benefits. JavaScript, it's the one for me. It's like the ugly car that never breaks down. It's reliable. Well. <laughs> JavaScript is a pigeon language, eh? It's, uh, it's kind of like English. It, it just borrows stuff from all the other languages, turns into something that's actually very expressive and elegant, and you can write poetry in it. It won't be as pretty as poetry written in, say, Hindi or you know, Gujarati, which are languages that I also know, but it'll be good poetry. It's the bazaar instead of, instead of the cathedral. It's the bazaar. This is true. What, what do you guys think about TypeScript? It's amazing if you are working on a big project with lots of people and there's potential for introducing bugs into code. Do you guys think it's a bizarre thing, a cathedral thing, neither, both? That's such a fascinating question. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, because this is the fight that's always been going on. This was Crockford versus Brendan Eich. Look up the history of JavaScript 5. JavaScript 5 was essentially fighting about who gets to decide what the next JavaScript is. This has been, I think, a tension that's existed throughout the course of the language. Actually, I made a comment about this on our last episode. I think that JavaScript wants to be more like TypeScript right now because it needs more structure. It's, it's so dynamic, but it's not going to go all the way into being C-sharp. It'll eventually hit a point where it gets too close and then people will rebel against it and it'll go back to being more dynamic. I think it's like full stack versus the microservices thing. You keep going back and forth, bundling, unbundling, you know? I build everything I build in TypeScript. I really do like the IntelliSense. That's like the best part. But I do admit, how much of the TypeScript fundamentals do I truly understand? Probably about 70%. There's still stuff that's like uncharted territory, don't know. You're basically paving a path before no anyone's paved it. I don't know what's in front of me. So TypeScript is that kind of like guider saying left a bit, right a bit, left a bit. And at the end of the day, it's really good, but bad at the same time. And I'm going to do, I'm going to say why it's bad in two in not two words a few words, open git issue. Can I have types for this, please? Close issue. Done. I, I isolate all my annies. I just put I, I put all my annies into nice little boxes, and all of my code is TypeScript other than that nice little box. But it puts library creators in in a in a bad situation like. Brandon, I've helped Brandon out from Blitz on uh, on his TypeScript stuff before, and it taught me a thing or two that I didn't know about TypeScript. It's, it's really advanced, it's complicated, and people are demanding it, and it's just a big time waster. It's a time sink. It's not, it's not something that'll make your library better at the end of the day. You don't think it can make your library more stable and have like better terms, just like maintainability? Well, well, it depends on the library. Uh, if you if it's just a simple util. So I think for something like Vue, like I'm talking like Vue and Svelte both recently have moved over to TypeScript. Those to me seem like projects that would greatly benefit from it because they're so massive and so complicated. My thought is sometimes, I'm not going to say all the time, but types are better than documentation, especially with something like Stripe, where you're basically passing an object. You don't know what the object is or what all the different fields in the object are. Yes. I could open the documentation and search for it, or I could just click the type and then the type's going to tell me what's optional and what's not optional. In that use case, TypeScript is really good. But in terms of writing the types as the library creator, you tend to see two ways, sorry, three ways now. You're the crazy guy that codes in flow. Who does that these days? You adopt TypeScript in a major rewrite it's now all in TypeScript. You say, I'm not doing anything in TypeScript. That's up to you. Or my favorite is you add types to a JavaScript library, the most messy way. It's, uh, it's a crazy, crazy world. And I really hope we are saved by WebAssembly. WebAssembly is, is, is like, WebAssembly is kind of like my Captain Marvel. I just really hope it's going to come in and save us all. I'd love to talk web WebAssembly. That, that'll be episode two. We'll talk WebAssembly. <laughs> but yeah, um, to, to start closing it out here, um, was there anything more about the Mint Bean apprenticeship program that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it's like, look, I've, I, I've basically built Mint Bean. I shouldn't say I. My partner and I have built Mint Bean to help younger developers, newer developers. And it's something that's super necessary. It's, it's a system that we need help building and we can't build it in a vacuum. 
And I just wanted to maybe plug a little bit about the sponsorship and the apprenticeship and how that might benefit companies and individuals. When you're working with a senior developer like myself, the hourly rates are usually triple digits. And I've seen hourly rates in quad digits for short-term contracts. But when you're working with a newer developer who's being guided by a senior developer like myself, you get best of both worlds. And that's the value prop, if you want to call it a value prop. That's the value prop that we're offering to our sponsors. Is you get guidance from people like me, but you get the work done by people like Anthony, who are really smart. And this has been a wonderful conversation. And I've learned, uh, I've learned a couple of really interesting things. I'm going to have to look into Algo and... Crawford versus Eichmann, that, that whole conversation. Yeah, I'm a history nerd for sure. I noticed. You should look up type balls. Type balls are interesting, more on the hardware side. But yeah, like we, we hire developers like Anthony and we help them get their first paying work and we help them get the mentorship they need. I've taken people from three months right out of a crash course program. At three months that, at the six month mark, they were at the intermediate level. There's no other way to put it. They were at the solid intermediate level and only because they got the production experience they needed from sponsors. If anybody would like to get in touch with me, I would love to have a conversation about how Mintbeam can help you because the goal over here is not to help me, it's to help the developers that are in our community. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, to make this memorable, my first name is Monarch as in the queen or the butterfly, whichever you prefer. My last name is Wadia. Uh, that's kind of like the uh, Republic of Wadia from the Borat movie. So now you're not going to forget I am the king of Wadia, Monarch Wadia. You can look me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, anywhere, or you can look up Mintbean. You'll find me out there on the interwebs on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, best way to get in touch with me. Yeah, thanks a lot for being here, Monarch. This is an awesome conversation, and like I have so much respect for, for what you're doing. Thank you, Anthony. Chris, uh, you guys are doing really cool work over here. The FS Jam thing, uh, I'm so happy that they, they have somebody who's advocating for it, like you guys, and I uh, hope you guys spread the word. Thank you so much for having me on board today. And talking about spreading the word, you can now find us on most podcast platforms. The easiest way to find if the podcast is on the platform is by searching it on the platform or by going to fsjam.org slash subscribe. We are now on all the podcast players from Apple Podcasts to Google Podcasts. You can join the Discord at the link at our website is fsjam.org where you'll also see the show notes for this episode. Thanks from me. Thanks a lot. Edit, edit, edit. <laughs>